Chapter thirty six of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter thirty six. Dr. Steddon had constantly besought from his pulpit forgiveness for his flock's woeful sins of omission and commission. He had cried to heaven that his people were miserable sinners, incessantly backsliding into every wickedness. Yet it was somehow different when a motion picture player growled, as Claymore did now, Well, we are rotten, rottener than any outsider knows, and we're only getting what was coming to us. Claymore was always the apologist. What he loved, he distrusted. His wife had left him on that account. He had felt compelled to correct her faults and lovingly chastise her. He had been a director in the theater and had gone about shamefaced on account of the misbehavior of so many of its people, the alleged low standards of the successes, the lack of appreciation for Shakespeare, the absence of a true sense of art in all Americans, the mysterious genius for art in all foreigners. As soon as he had been decoyed into the motion picture field, the theater borrowed enchantment from distance. It was as noble as antiquity. And now all his wailings were against the trash the motion picture trade turned out and its base commercialism compared with the lofty accomplishments of the theater. He was a priest at an altar, but he always praised the elder gods. So now he growled. The motion pictures have been riding for a fall, it's all due to a sudden rush of money to the head. Cowboys were yanked off the ranch and sent loco with the effort to spend a thousand dollars a week. Brainless village girls and artist models were plunged into enormous publicity and dazzled with fortunes for making a few faces every day at a camera. They acted like drunken grand dukes before every jeweler's window. They gave parties that were nothing but riots. The vampire was developed as a special attraction. The press agents magnified the wickedness of their clients. Divorces were considered good advertising. There are sots and dope fiends among us, and immorality enough to sink a ship. Tom Holby was of another character. What he loved, he adored, fought for, would not criticize or permit to be criticized. Hold on a minute, Claymore, he broke in. Is there any part of the country where booze parties are unknown? The dope fiends aren't all in Hollywood. Every other town has about the same quota. East and west and north and south, in Europe, Asia, Africa, it's the same. I tell you, the average morality is just as high in Hollywood or Culver City as anywhere else in the world. We're a bunch of hard workers, and the women work as hard as the men. They're respected and given every opportunity for wealth and fame and freedom. The public has been fed on a lot of crazy stories. A few producers have kept up the idea. A lot of bad women are at large in the movies, but most of them were bad before they came in, and they'd have been a lot worse if they had stayed at home. The moving pictures did more to keep girls and boys off the street than all the prayer meetings ever held. They drove the saloon out of business more than any other power. The screen is the biggest educational and moral force ever discovered, and it hasn't got a fault that is all its own. I tell you, it's a cowardly shame to throw dirt on it. I hold my head just a little higher than ever, and I am shouting just a little louder than before, that I'm a movie man. 
Mem looked on Tom Holby with new eyes. She had never thought of him as a fiery patriot in his art. His hot zeal was vastly becoming to him and cast into the shade the revering affection she had gained for Claymore, the inspirer and encourager of her personal skill. Her art was bigger than herself, and she was thrilled with almost reverence for Holby. To the surprise of everyone, the most ardent defender of the movies was the least expectable of all in such a gallery. Mrs. Steddon, the minister's wife. Her demure, shy soul kept her quiet for a long while, but finally she struck out with all the wrath of the patient and the long-suffering. She was indeed now a Hollywood mother. She was the mother of all the movies, and she lashed forth in an abrupt frenzy like an enraged kitten. Well, I think it's a crying shame for everybody to begin picking on such lovely people who work so hard and have such good hearts and do so much to make the world brighter. And if you make it brighter, you make it better. You children mustn't take it so much to heart. This is a lynching country, and every once and so often they've got to have a victim, no matter where they find him. When I was a girl, the people that wanted to free the slaves were treated worse than what movie people are, and when our church was young, the other churches used to treat us terribly. The things they said about our early preachers, and did to them, jail and whipping posts and abuse. Good gracious, you'd never believe it. Look what they did to Admiral Dewey, one day the nation's pet hero, and the next a yellow dog. They gave him a house for a gift, and when he put it in his wife's name, just to make sure of it for her, the people rose and treated him worse than they treated Goteau. And all he had done was to be nice to his wife. From her, of all people, came even a word of compassion for the object of the nation's wrath. And that poor young man who got into all the trouble... He couldn't have meant to do any harm. He was just a big, overgrown boy, and he made too much money too soon, and he drank too much. Oh, the terrible sufferings people go through who can't help drinking too much when they find what they've done. There was a deacon in our church, a good man as ever was, but now and then he'd go mad for liquor, and he never knew what he might do. Once, after a long period of being perfectly nice, he tasted the communion wine and left the church and went mad crazy with whiskey and, oh dear, how he wept and prayed. Even my husband was sorry for him. Christ was sorry for everybody, even for the people that crucified him. And that young man, so big and fat and funny, all the world laughed at him and paid fortunes to see him act, and now people are after him like wolves, and nobody says a good word for him. Even if he had done what they said he did, how broken-hearted he would be now. It seems to me that most of the people who howl for his life are making themselves crueler than what they say he was. Nobody seems to know just how that poor girl came to her death, but suppose the worst that said was true. It's not half as bad as 
thousands of cases that have gone on in this country. Why, in our peaceful little town, there was a terrible thing happened. I hardly dare speak of it, but there was a pretty young girl, a wild thing, but awful pretty, and some young fellows got a lot of liquor, and she was alone with them, and after terrible goings-on, why, she died the next day, and that happened right in our hometown of Calverly, long before moving pictures were even thought of, and not a line was published in a single newspaper, not a sermon was preached against it, and nobody ever dreamed of prosecuting one of the five young men who really killed that poor foolish young girl. Two of the men were members of my husband's church. They were terribly sorry and repentant, and it seemed the right thing to hush it up and not talk about it. I guess there isn't a town in the world that hasn't had things like that happen. A preacher's wife gets to know the most pitiful things. If all the preachers and doctors and mothers and fathers would tell all they knew, oh dear, what revelations! And so I say, why should everybody act like this young man was the first one that ever did anything terrible? Why should they say it had anything to do with the business he was in? Why should they persecute the dear, good, nice people in the moving pictures? I think it's just frightful, and if I was in the movies, I just wouldn't stand it. Mem throbbed with love of her mother for her ardor, but she bent her head, realizing her own secret. Claymore stared at the flaming little matron with gleaming eyes of approval. Leva Lemaire squirmed, ashamed of her own acquiescence in the storm of abuse. But Tom Holby rose from his chair and, going to Mrs. Steddon, bent down and kissed her on the hair and wrung her little hand and kissed it. And in that tribute he wooed Mem more compellingly than in any other possible wise. Mrs. Steddon clung to Tom Holby's big hand and patted it, then rose and left the room. When Mem would have followed, she was sent back. Then Mrs. Steddon, in a fine frenzy, went to her table and wrote her husband an answer to his letter. Dear husband, I am ashamed of you for writing such a mean little note. Yes, I am proud to say that my daughter is an actress and is doing fine work. If you are not proud of her, it is because you don't know enough to be. You will some day, you'll see. She is working hard and earning lots of money, and I'm going to stay with her as long as she needs me. I guess you can get along without me a while. If you can't, come on out and see for yourself how wrong you are. I hope your next letter will be an apology. Mem would send her love if she knew I was writing. Your loving wife. When this tiny bomb exploded in Dr. Steddon's parsonage, it produced an astounding effect. The old devil fighter was not afraid of all the legions of hell. He could even face his richest pew-holder without flinching. He could oppose his bishop or a whole assembly of fellow ministers. But he was afraid of that little wife of his. She alone could scold him with impunity and by the mere withdrawal of her approval cast a cloud across his heaven. He was in an abject perplexity now. Mrs. Steddon was as much afraid of Mem as her husband was of her. 
She dared not tell Mem that she had written the letter until after it was mailed beyond retrieving. Then she confessed, and Mem startled her by a sudden collapse into bitter grief. I have come between you and Papa. I have disgraced the family and lied to him, and dragged you away from him, and set you against him. I have taken you away from the other children, and broken up our beautiful home, and I wish I were dead. Mrs. Steddon poured out lies with spendthrift zeal in the effort to comfort her and restore her pride. Your father needs a vacation, and your sister Gladys is taking better care of the house than I did. But Mem's grief was irredeemable. Yet there was a benefit even in this. Her heart was so abrim with tears that, in a scene next day, when Claymore wanted her to weep, he had only to call for tears, and they gushed in torrents. And from this enhanced responsiveness and the aggravated sympathy it aroused in his heart, came the great peril that Teary had warned the girl against, the peril not of having to sell herself, but of giving herself away just for the graciousness of the deed. End of chapter 36 Recording by Deanna Beauvais